welcome to Metanoia from thebestschools.org, where we explore the beliefs, events, and pursuits that shape the minds and lives of both ordinary and extraordinary people. I'm Rich Tatum. On July 29, 2016, Netflix released the first season of Last Chance U, six episodes of what many have called the best sports documentary ever made. Even better, as Stuart Heritage at The Guardian said, you do not need a working knowledge of American football to enjoy this. I was absolutely gripped. If you haven't watched Last Chance U yet, this interview contains some spoilers, but whether you've seen it or not, you should know the hero of this story isn't the coach, though he is larger than life. The student athletes, heroic and tragic though they are, are also not the heroes. Rather, the person you wind up rooting for and crying for in this serial drama is a firebrand of an academic counselor, Brittany Wagner. Like most educators, Brittany works behind the scenes. She never expected to be thrust into the spotlight. In fact, she fully expected her footage to land on the cutting room floor. But Last Chance You has done something nobody expected. It revealed the unsung heroism of a winning team's biggest fan and secret weapon, the academic advisor. Listen in to part one of a two-part series as we explore the life and mind of a top-performing academic advisor, mentor, and friend. I'm here on the phone with Brittany Wagner, who has been serving for the past eight years as the academic advisor for the athletic department at East Mississippi Community College. I think your actual title is Athletic Instructional Advisor and Compliance Assistant. That is correct. Athletic Instructional Advisor is a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> it's a way of saying academic advisor, right? Yes, academic advisor, academic counselor, um, any of those are fine. And basically the athletic part is just I only work with athletes. People may know you from Last Chance You, which is a Netflix documentary that it was released worldwide last year, July 29, to uh, resounding positive reviews. Out of the gate, you were sort of labeled as the breakout star of the show, much to your surprise, because the GQ article that it was based on or that, that it was inspired by, even though the GQ writers followed you around for months, you were totally cut from the article, and so you expected not to even be featured in the video, right? Right. I expected it to be a show about football, and I thought that they were just following me around, you know, maybe because they knew that athletes would come in my office, and, and there may be a couple stories here and there that they would need to get. I had I honestly had no expectation of how much or how little I would be in it. Um, I, I really thought that no one would kind of care about my role, that everyone would be watching it for the football part. And so I just really had no expectations. And you probably weren't terribly surprised because academic advisors really are kind of the unsung heroes of the academic world, aren't they? Yeah, I think that it's a thankless job. You know, I think that's kind of the common theme. Me being cut out of that GQ article kind of sums up academic advising. <laughs> You're kind of cut right. out of, you know, all of the the hype and, and forefront, I guess, of college athletics. Um, there are academic advisors at every 
university in the country that have an athletic program, there is probably a department, more than one person. Um, at your larger institutions, there are 20, 50, you know, people that are working in those departments advising these athletes. And then there's tutors and mentors and all kinds of other people that work under them. And they're just the unsung heroes. They're the people behind the scenes that kind of make the wheels run that a lot of college football fans don't know about. Now, when you began your educational path, you actually wanted to pursue uh, studying to be an attorney before you went to college, and and your mom kind of dissuaded (laughs) you from that path, right? Yeah, she's really mad at me for saying that. But (laughs) Uh, well, I I hate to rub salt in the wounds. I mean, but even after you got to college and you had started studying, you were majoring in sport communication. And your first job out of school was working with the PR department, right? Yes. I um, majored in sports communication. And honestly, I picked that major because it had the least amount of math affiliated (laughs) with it. So (laughs) for all the wrong reasons. And I did love my classes. I did love being in that major. and And I always was a sports fan. So I knew I wanted to go into something with athletics. I just didn't know what. My first job was with the media relations department at Mississippi State, just as an intern student worker. And then I worked for the Charlotte Knights, which is a AAA baseball team for the White Sox, the summer after I graduated from college um, as an intern again. And so I really felt like I thought that the kind of the media relations, community relations, um, marketing, that kind of field would be what I went into. And then um, I got a graduate assistantship at Mississippi State in the Athletic Academic Office. And it was the first time I had ever heard of that. And when I started working there, I knew almost instantaneously that that was what I wanted to do. What made that connection for you, uh, moving from communications being the outward face, working with the public and translating all of the school's programs for public and, and commercial consumption to making those connections with athletes. It's a totally different shift. It's a different perspective. I think it was the relationships with the athletes. You know, those people, the academic counselors may be the people that are behind the scenes that no one knows about, but they are the people connected the best with the athletes. They are the people that actually know these athletes um, on a totally different level. They know their background, they know their history, they know their tendencies, they know their strengths, their weaknesses, um, their vulnerabilities, and that was what appealed to me. Not necessarily being the face of anything, but being the person that could really build the relationships with the student-athletes that were competing for these institutions. Looking back, can you see the direct connection between your parents and your career path today? Definitely. I think that that too is, you know, part of, if if not, if not all of the reason, definitely a huge part of the reason why this is my passion and why this, I have been so successful in this career. My dad um, has a PhD in psychology and is a college professor, but also a psychologist. And my mom was a special ed director Um, speech pathologist, special ed teacher, and then special ed director. So I think those two, I I think I honestly, what I did was I merged their two careers (laughs) into my own. Um, I've definitely taken um, so much um, from what they taught me growing up and from watching them in their own careers 
to help me kind of figure out my own and, and how to deal with the athletes that I work with every day. Did that come as a surprise to you when you first realized that one day that, oh my gosh, I've become my parents? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I realized it at East Mississippi, actually. Uh, there would be several times where I just, I would have an athlete that I just didn't know how to help. And it was either on a psychological basis, I didn't know how to help them, or a learning disability, you know, basis, and I didn't know how to help them. And I would find myself rather than calling another counselor at another school or, you know, or, or asking someone else, I would find myself always calling my parents. You know, I would call my dad and say, okay, this kid is doing this. What does that mean? What do, how do I need to respond? Or I would call my mom and say, hey, you know, I've got someone that I don't think can read. What do I need to do? So I, I found myself always calling my parents. Um, and just a tremendous help, tremendous insight from them. How has sport communication continued to help you in this job? You know, I think it all ties together. I think I realized the other day, I, I made the comment that I have no marketing experience. And someone looked at me and was like, you actually do market, you market every day because you're marketing academics. You're, you're, you are marketing academics to athletes that don't want to buy into that. You know, that's what you're doing every day is selling this to these athletes. Um, and their buy-in is crucial to their success. So, you know, I think that I use it a lot more than I think I do. I also, in, in obviously in sports communication, I had to take a lot of communication classes, a lot of interviewing classes and um, media classes, and and obviously <laughs> that has panned out quite well, seeing that I have done hundreds now of um, television and radio and podcast interviews you know, I find myself going back to my interviewing class or my speech class or, you know, other media classes that I took. And um, it's just, it's interesting to me how you later on in life, you know, you realize that things that you really didn't think you would ever use, that you actually do use them every day. It, it seems to me that you have a built-in roadblock that that it is maybe insurmountable in some ways because... These students can never make academics their top priority because many of them are coming from small towns and the hopes of the entire town is riding on their shoulders. Right. They have got to make it big because everybody at home expects them to. And you are yammering in their ears, harping on them, asking them where their pencils are. How do you get past that massive roadblock? You know, it's tough. And I think earlier on in my career, I was way more nagging, you know, and I was more narrow minded um, in just why, you know, in thinking like, well, okay, well, you just do it. You know, you have to do it, do it. That worked with some people and it didn't work with others. But I think over the years, I've, I've learned that the only way to really get the roadblock down and to get the walls down and to really connect with people is to know them and to understand them and to be tolerant of them. And so I, I started learning that if I would listen to them, listen to their stories, you know, ask them about their, their stories and their self, but then, but then help them to meet them where they're at, you know, and help them to take their stories, take where they've been, take all that they've come from and use it to move forward, not use it as an excuse, 
you know, to, to not be good enough or to not be able to do this, but it's important and it's valuable. You know, where they came from and what they've gone through in their life is, is valuable and it's important and it's part of who they are. And I think a lot of times we want to dismiss that and, and we want them, we want certain people, college athletes, um, we want them to act in, in a certain way. And we, we don't take into consideration where they've come from and what they've been through and why they do the things that they do. And so, you know, these, a lot of these kids that I've worked with, they have had traumatic experiences in their lives. And if you will listen to them and talk to them and really understand where they're coming from, it really makes the fact that they show up to class without a pencil really insignificant. You know, and I can nag them about not coming to class with a pencil because as a upper class white female whose parents took me school supply shopping every semester, that seems silly to show up to college without a pencil. Or I can just hand them a pencil and move on, you know, <laughs> move on to things that maybe will matter more down the line. And I think that as I've gotten older, that's just the approach that I've taken more and I think that's where the trust and the relationships and, and honestly, you know, the, the real life changes come from is when they feel understood. You know, you describe several massive gaps that exist between you and the students you're trying to help. You've got a gender gap, almost entirely uh, male athletes. You're, you're white. And many of the students you're trying to help are not. You're coming from a, a more affluent background than these kids. And many of them are coming from impoverished backgrounds. You're coming from a family of educated parents. And some of these kids are coming from broken families, if not, you know, uh, non-existent families. Uh, and, if, and what families they do have are not educated or semi-literate. H how do you manage to cross all of those gaps? I don't know. <laughs> I think some of it is just an innate ability that is God-given. Um, I can remember back, my earliest memory of it, it was fourth grade, where I had, because of alphabetical seating, I sat in front of a student that was from a poor area. And, and I can remember in the fourth grade, you know, being concerned about him and and his well-being and why he didn't have lunch money or why he didn't do his homework at night and, and helping him and, and developing this relationship and this bond with this this boy in the fourth grade that really was unexplainable to a lot of people. Um, and so I don't know. I think some of that is just something that was just placed in me by a higher being. I do think, though, that you also, you know, it just comes with your own life experiences and, and your own your own desire to just be better, you know? And I think as I've gotten older, things that I've been through have, have kind of forced me to, to be a little bit more understanding. But I also just, you know, it was just a trait that I developed that I saw my parents treat people that way and just developed that ability to be tolerant and understanding of people. And um, I think the gender gap actually works in my favor. I think with African-American, especially men, or guys, they've, they've had a distrusting relationship with a male at some point in their life. A lot of them don't have father figures. You know, in a lot of their stories, not all of them, but a lot of their stories, it's been an abandonment of a male that has created a lot of turmoil in their life. And so I think they go into relationships with men with a little bit of just built-in distrust. 
So I think it helps me. Most of them at least had a, a female in their life somewhere that was loving to them and mothering to them. And it may not have been a mother, but a grandmother, an aunt, um, a, you know, someone on the, in the neighborhood. They've had some female that has really shown them love and a mothering trait. And so I think they're a little bit more trusting of, of females right off the bat. So I think that, that helped me. You know, the interesting thing that I've learned about this generation is they don't see color as much as maybe older generations do. So I don't really know, with me and my office and my dealings with these athletes, it's not something that's really ever talked about or really ever been an issue um, with myself or with the with the players. I just don't think they're... No, but it is funny when you're trying to understand the latest uh, rap lyric (laughs) and uh, they accuse you of spending time on Urban Dictionary all day. Yes, like it's funny moments where, you know, I think they make fun of me, you know, and we, and we, you know, crack jokes and there's been issues before. There's things that I, I try really hard to accept them, you know, as who they are and then to figure out a way to better them in some way. One of the things that I started doing very early on um, in my career was uh, the there are certain words that, you know, are just, they fly freely from, from these kids' mouths. And I try to allow that for them to just talk the way that they talk, and, and let's try to correct that problem as we go. Uh, maybe get them to think more about when those words are appropriate and when they're not. Um, but you know, I have a rule in my office. You can be who you are. You can say what you want to say. You can, you know, listen to the music you want to listen to, but there's, there's two words that are not allowed in my office. And after, after as long as I've been there, you know, eight years, I don't even have to set that rule anymore. They, they know it. And the freshmen coming in, the sophomores tell them, Hey, the first time, you know, one of those words comes out of their mouth, the, the sophomores will look at the freshmen and say, Hey, you can't say that in here. And it, it's interesting to me that there's a respect there <laughs> for the four walls that I work in and words that may normally flow from their mouth, they don't say in my office. And I think that you can accept people as who they are, but also set a standard. And I, I think that both of those things can be done as long as it's respectful. And I think that that's what I was able to do is respect them for who they are, but also set a standard for them. We respected each other enough for them. They would meet that standard. What's the biggest thing you've learned on the job about doing this job? Don't fight every battle. Let things go. When you're dealing with coaches specifically, I don't think it's so much to do with the athletes, but when you're dealing with coaches, coaches are typically very um, egotistical, stubborn, aggressive, um, especially if you're dealing with coaches that win, you know, there's the job description, right? And it makes them they're, they're very um, controlling, type A, temperamental, and and that makes them good. That's what makes them win. But they can be very difficult to deal with off the field, you know, in in an office work setting because they want everything their way. They want it immediately. They, they don't, they're not typically very good listeners. And so I think in the, in the beginning of my career, every little thing that a coach would disagree with me on or, or would come at me with, I would fight, you know, I would argue or fight or try to stand up for. And, and I learned that, save it for something that really matters. (laughs) You know, save those moments and those battles for situations where it's a compromise. It's something that I will not compromise on. 
But if it's not really going to be that big of a deal at the end of the day, then just let it go. You've said that your true passion is music and dance. Yes. I understand (laughs) that you were the head coach of the cheerleading squad. I was. Funny how I fell into that. Earlier in my career, when I was at Jacksonville State University in Jacksonville, Alabama, the cheerleading coach had just gotten let go, and it was like in the middle of the year, and so they were scrambling to find someone, and the athletic director just basically saw that I was disciplined and knew that I had a dance background, but just, I think, saw my work ethic and and said, hey, will you do this? (laughs) Will you just do this to get us through the end of the year? just take on the cheerleaders and and in a very minor role. And I agreed to doing it. And then four years later, I was still coaching the cheerleaders at Jacksonville State. You were on stage with Lance Bass. I was. (laughs) I was. Um, Lance Bass and I were in a high school show choir called Attaché Show Choir. We were very competitive, won 10, I think, national championships in a row. They're still the winningest show choir in the country. And the show choir world is a very huge competitive world for people that don't know that. And Lance Bass and I, we grew up together. We went to high school together. We were in that show choir together before he was a member of NSYNC. You you could have had a career in dance. Well, I you know, I don't know that I could have. I wanted to. Um, I wanted to be on Broadway. Actually, um, I have been a singer and sung all my life, and the same with dancing. And obviously, being in show choir, you're doing both singing and dancing. And um, I, my show choir director, actually, my senior trip, he took me to New York with his wife. He and his wife took me to New York. I saw the original cast of Rent, and just a fantastic experience for me. And I think their dream was for me to be on Broadway. And I think my dream, you know, was to be on Broadway. And I just wasn't brave enough. I mean, I just wasn't brave enough to pursue that. I lacked confidence. I didn't think, I didn't really think that I was good enough at either dance or singing to really make it a career. Um, And so I kind of just gave it up. And I haven't really done it since. Do you have any regrets about that? You know, sometimes I think... I don't know that they're regrets. I I wonder, though, why I didn't believe in myself more, because I had all the backings to believe in myself. Um, You know, I was popular in high school. I was I was talented. I had the support of my parents and and my teachers. And I I just had it all going for me. And I don't I don't really know where that um, just lack of belief in myself and lack of self-confidence came from. And so I wonder about that sometime. I regret that, that I didn't just have that I'm going to go for it attitude. But, you know, I mean, I think I've definitely been successful at what I chose to do. And, you know, I don't know that I would have really gone anywhere in in the dancing and the singing. (laughs) Do you you regret not studying to be an attorney? No, I don't really regret that. Um, You know, that was kind of an early thing of mine. And my mom was probably right. I don't know. I don't know that I would be happy. I mean, I think I would have been good at it, and I think I would have been successful at it, but I don't know that I would have been happy doing it. I don't think that that was my passion or really any had anything to do with my passion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Metanoia. If you have any feedback, please leave comments at our website, thebestschools.org, where you'll find this interview and many others. 
Also, be sure to subscribe to our feed, leave a review on iTunes, and tell your friends.